This is the Milo Beasley Show. This is the Milo Beasley Show. There's only one thing you need to know. This is the Milo Beasley Show. And now, here's your host, Milo Beasley. And welcome to the Milo Beasley Show. Dude, 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 dude. I'm super excited today. I have on a native Floridian, uh, possibly for one of the very few occasions. Uh, so please, with no further ado, help me welcome at this time. You know him from his work, Little Movie, 1999. Whew, 1999. <laughs> please help me welcome, from the Blair Witch Project, Dan uh, Myrick. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. Good to see you. Oh, man. So, yeah, native Floridian. Uh, oh, where, you said you were in Seattle now? Yeah, living in Seattle, my wife and two kids. Um, but, yeah, grew up in, in Lombok Key and uh, lived there for several years. And then I lived in Fort Myers for a while, went to school there, and then got into UCF film program and did that for a few years and then worked in Orlando, Tampa, all over Southwest Florida area, pretty much. And, um, and then, yeah, finally moved to LA after Blair and, uh, and then spent about 18 years in LA and then finally escaped and got and went, moved up to Seattle. <laughs> yeah. I, I've actually known quite a few people. Um, uh, Dinah Manoff from Greece lives up in Seattle, did not want to do that. LA life anymore and wanted to get out. And uh, I went to Seattle last year for Emerald City Comic Con. And man, what a cool place. It's a great city. And there's a lot of us LA refugees up here. And, you know, it's a quick plane ride into LA when you need to go and you're on the same time time zone and all. So, um, but it's just a, it's a, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a more um, laid back, kind of chill lifestyle up here and and uh, a lot of outdoor activities and I like bike riding and stuff like that so it's a it's it's just a great city it's an awesome city really yeah cool. let's talk about bike riding a little bit uh you were set up last year or yeah last year yeah last year to do this uh great divide uh mountain uh bike route <laughs> I mean you yeah. cross country yeah, yeah, it was, it, it, it sort of came during COVID. I was getting a little stir crazy and um, looking for something to do to get out of the house and exercise. And I used to like biking way back in the day. And um, I'm also kind of a big camper. I like to camp a lot, take the kids out and whatnot. So I kind of discovered biking again here. And I live on Bainbridge Island, which is just off the coast of Seattle. And it's lots of hills and stuff. And um and yeah I, there's this whole subculture called bikepacking and uh and then i started doing that and then found out about this tour divide which is basically a, a the longest continuous mountain bike trail um in the world so it, it runs from banff canada all the way down to the mexico border through the united states so i did i did about half of that um last year i was riding for wounded warrior project and and uh and yeah, I did a solo unsupported ride for about, I don't know, 1400 miles. And now my plan is to do the second half this summer. So we'll see how it goes if the, if the fires aren't too bad, but it was pretty amazing experience. So how long did it take you to do four, to go 1400 miles? Um, all in about four and a half weeks, close to five weeks. Cause I took a few kind of rest days in there. Um, there's some people amazingly, they, they're like the really hardcore, like Olympian level folks they they do that whole route in about i don't know under three weeks it's it's pretty wow. amazing but uh i'm not one of those folks <laughs> i i take i take my time i like to kind of see the sights in the long way but it's, right. it's hard work i mean clearly you're, you're you're riding along the entire spine of the continental divide so it's a lot of climbing it's about 200 well about 180,000 feet of climbing all in for the whole for the whole tour so it's a lot of climbing that's Oof, man, that's uh, your cardio has got to be pretty good and your legs got to be fantastic. Yeah, time. well, at the end of that, it's yeah, you, you're like your legs of steel, you know, when, <laughs> once you do that. But, you you know, I, I lost about 15 pounds the first the first go and you're just burning so many calories. Right. I mean, you're doing like five, seven thousand calories a day and you can't you just can't keep up the, 
caloric intake. So, right. Um, and you're out in the backwoods for about three or four days at a time. So you're just kind of living off, you know, what little you can carry. And then you get into town and you pig out like crazy. Then you go back out again. <laughs> so it's pretty intense and it's, it's an endurance test, no doubt about it. Yeah. But, um, but the sights you see along the way and the experiences and the people that you run into, it's just an amazing sort of once in a lifetime thing. I see why people get sort of hooked on to doing it. It's really, it's really a great experience. Right. You're out there by yourself. Do you give, did you get any, uh, any, you know, script ideas while you're out there? Just I the think it's a great place to sort of, um, especially again on, on the heels of COVID, everyone's sort of getting a little stir crazy and everyone's like reevaluating their life and what should I be doing with my life? And so it's great therapy. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of inspiration. I've been writing this one script called the uh, Bailey and the beast that I was sort of getting good ideas on. So I'm, I'm in the middle of doing that. So that was a good sort of inspirational thing, but it's, it's just great for like clearing your head and sort of refocusing your energies and your, your psyche on, you know, just living in the moment, not worrying so much about, you know, 50,000 things that you can't control. And, uh, you know, you're, when you're in that mode, that biking over a mountain mode, all you can think about is like getting over that next hill <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, you know, trying to get to your camp site before dark, you know, so it really sort of simplifies your whole worldview um, and gets you outside of your comfort zone, which I think is real healthy every now and then for people to do. So, um, but yeah, once I was done with the first leg, I was certainly ready to get home, get a hot shower and sleep in a real bed, which was nice. And, um, but now I'm, I'm ready for the second leg. We'll see, we'll see how things go, but I'm, I'm hoping to get going out there in June. So we'll see. That's, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, best of luck to you. Thanks. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm here in Orlando, the city beautiful, and that's where wallet at UCF, um, yeah. a little project started stirring. So how did, how did the Blair Witch Project come to be while you were at UCF? Well, Ed Sanchez, my directing partner on it, and I, you know, we collaborated on several projects in film school. Um, and, you know, it, just like it, it is in college, you're always kind of bouncing on ideas and, and you're helping each other on each of those films and you get to talking about stuff. And, um, you know, in our senior year, we were sort of, I don't know, I guess getting a little bit tired of what we were seeing coming out of Hollywood. Everything was kind of big budget and really slick and produced and, and, and ultimately wasn't that scary. I mean, it had a, the pretext of being a horror movie, but right. it wasn't, they weren't really that scary. And so we kind of missed the days of, of like the exorcist and the omen films and Texas chainsaw massacre. I mean, when you really, left the movie theater sh shaken up. You were really like, man, that was scary. So I guess we wanted to kind of get back to that feeling I, to, to kind of create a movie that makes people feel the way we did when we saw those films. So um, it started off with just sort of a scene where we were talking about, imagine walking through the woods, like a documentary style thing, and you run across this house, this creepy house, and it's dark, it's night, and you can't turn away you're just you're just kind of forced to you know to watch walking into this house how creepy would that be and at the and, and it still gives me chills to think about it and there's something primal about that um, being sort of on this ride and you can't turn away and there's that unpredictability you're not sure what you're going to see next so that was sort of the nugget, the kernel of the creativity for us. And like, well, how do we build a movie around that feeling where it feels that way through the whole movie? And um, so, yeah, one thing led to another. We had all these goofy ideas about, you know, it's a, a group of army guys out there. It's, you know, it's an expedition. It's, and, you know, budget sort of dictated, well, we need to kind of simplify and it ended up being just three, three filmmakers. But, um, but yeah, it was sort of kind of inspired by those old documentaries and those kind of, um, you know, really straightforward, but simplistic kind of approaches to, to filmmaking. Like, 
um, like Legend of Boggy Creek and In Search of and those and those sort of pseudo documentaries that that play on that sense of unpredictability. Um, and then after film school, when we graduated, Ed went back to Maryland and I was still working in Orlando. You know, reality hit. You know, we, we, we didn't get the Spielbergian job we were all hoping as soon as we got our degree. So I was working as an editor and he was working in the kind of as a, as a web designer up in Maryland. And, you know, some time went by and we kind of reconnected. So, man, let's make that Woods movie we were talking about that, you know, that creepy house in the woods thing. And so that was really when we said, yeah, let's 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 do it. I mean, this is why we went to film schools to make movies. So Greg Hale, our producer, got involved and kicked in some money. And that's really what got it going. And. We developed it with our friends Ben Rock and 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 um, you know fleshed out some story and backstory and then one thing led to another. It started evolving and and um, Ed went on, and I went off and and wrote the outline and and then I wrote the script for it and um, and then yeah we went out and really scraped about thirty grand together and went out and shot shot what, what we could shoot and uh, and yeah the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do to to scrape that 30 grand together. Did you beg, borrow and steal from I mean, car washing out there on the, on the street corners? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit all the above, right? I mean, I, I was, I was working as an editor in, in, in Orlando at the time. So I had some jobs coming in and ironically enough, I, I scored a, um, a, an editor job for planet Hollywood and, all those videos inside the planet Hollywood, like the the Bruce Willis you know, collage videos and 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 all that kind of stuff. Wesley Snipes. Well, we we were cutting those. I was cutting those, and then um, so I I got it was a pretty it was a pretty sweet gig. And so the more of those jobs came in, the more I handed off to like Ed and Greg to help cut them. So that brought in money for us to be able to kind of keep the lights on and throw a little bit in, into into making Blair. Right. Um, and uh, one of our other co our other producing partners um, came on board a little bit later, uh, Rob Cowie, and he had some investor friends that kicked in some money for us to be able to go into production. Um, so it was a little bit of that, and then you know um, we created this investor reel. We call it this. We call it the investor reel, but it was like an eight minute. Um, pitch tape, like a, pr a prototype proof right. of concept, which I always recommend people to do. So it's sort of like a miniature fictionalized version of how you would format the actual movie. It was like a fake documentary of the backstory of the movie. And we used that to help um, pitch to dentists and stuff like that. And eventually John Pearson got wind of it, who discovered Spike Lee and Kevin Smith. So he kicked in some money because he bought the rights to it to show on his show. So it was a, a little bit of from there, a little bit of from there, a little bit from there, a little bit out of our own credit cards. And we were able to get enough together to go out and shoot the actual um, woods section, the woods, the woods stuff of the kids in the, um, out in Maryland. And um, so, yeah, you, you just you just find a way. Somehow you find a way. And um so yeah that was that was really what got most of the movie in the can and then we had a whole phase two portion that we were shooting in orlando in sanford in that area um that we shot which ended up constituting a lot of the the footage for the sci-fi special which was the supporting kind of uh, backstory for the right. for the film so um so yeah it was um it was about a like a three-year process of getting it all done and edited and wow. all that. So it was, it was, it's just typical indie film story up until the point where we got into Sundance, but yeah, raising the money is always a challenge. Where for, for somebody who, you know, maybe looking to do their own indie, indie film, where does, when you, when you get that money together, when you get that 30, 40, whatever, whatever you need, where mm -hmm. does the, the chunk of that money go to? Well, usually most of it goes into the film itself. I mean, you're, the, the goal is to, is to get the movie, um, you know, at least the production portion of it in, in the can, as they say. Right. You can get the shoot done, the bulk of the shoot done, where you have your actors in play. That's the most expensive portion of the entire process. Writing's cheap. It's, it's, you're doing your own writing. Right. It's, it's just all your own time. 
even post-production nowadays, you can cut on your laptop and that can just be you and your editor, you know, you and your, your laptop, but production, that's when you need logistics, you need, you know, uh, coordinators, you need locations, you need cameras, of course, and actors and whatnot. So that's the most expensive portion of the film. And if you can get that in the can, if you can get that portion knocked out, that's where the bulk of your money is going to go. And then the rest, you can kind of take your time. You can sort of like, you know, once you are all shot out and you've got everything and you can look at it on your computer, then you can kind of take your time and, and, and edit and do the sound design and all that as, as more money trickles in. But, but the bulk of that initial raise goes to the physical production. Right. Uh, who and when was it decided that you were going to use viral marketing um, the internet, putting little clips out at uh, festivals, at Sundance, at other, you know, festivals, newspaper ads, you know, th this was one of the, the first movies of the internet era. Yeah. So who decided and, and, and how did that, you know, did it get decided to use those tools to promote the movie as opposed to just putting a movie out? Well, it's, it was kind of organic. I mean, the you know, it's sort of, I think, sprung from that original uh, proof of concept video, which we were sort of in the mindset of, you know, presenting it as if it were real. So the whole goal was to like show this thing in a room full of people, and if they bought it, if they if they thought that that little eight minute reel was legit then we could turn to them and say, we want to do a whole movie like this, right? So everything that went into that little eight minute trailer, fake news reports, you know, fake interviews, all that stuff we set up, we, we, we contrived it all. So the marketing campaign for the actual movie was just like an extension of that thinking. We just sort of rolled that into a, big, into a bigger play with the actual movie and never really let on that the film was just fictional. We let people sort of believe what they wanted to believe. Right. And, you know, and if you went to the website that we created, um, if you, you know, clicked on to be a member or something, you could see that we were filmmakers and it was fictional. But if you didn't really want to know, you didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious that it was a movie. So, um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So the web at the time um, was a real cheap alternative for us to market the movie. I mean, Earthlink gave us like a free website. I mean, if you signed up for Earthlink, you got a free website. So, I mean, Ed had a little bit of knowledge about how to build websites. So a lot of the footage that we shot in that kind of phase two stuff and the photographs and everything that we used for that, that pitch reel, um, we threw up on the site and um, so we had a lot of material already for creating this conceit that what we were doing was real. And, and that just sort of really hooked people in. People like looked at it and go, man, this is so cool. There's this all this backstory to this movie that they're doing. And, and, and they, they, they really embraced our approach to the marketing and, the, and our approach to how to tell this film. So we had a few core fans that were in on it early on that really took that ball and ran with it. Um, and that was really the most fun, seeing it sort of like take on a life of its own. The fans sort of embraced all that backstory and, and before you know it, they were creating their own rumors and everything. And so it was, it was really cool. And that, that is, um, it doesn't, I mean, it still happens, but right. it was so new. And in that kind of platform, it was so new um, that even back then, people thought the Internet was sort of this kind of, you know, repository of truthfulness. Right. <laughs> On the Internet, it has to be true, right? It's got to be true, right? So, um, so yeah, it was, it was uh, a pretty inexpensive way for us to market our movie. I, I had always said, even back then, it's like, it's, it's pretty cool that our website for Blair Witch is literally one click away from Universal Studios. We, we're, we're playing in the same sandbox as the big boys. And you can't say that of any other medium. Like I can't, we can't buy a billboard next to Universal Studios billboard for their latest film or buy a full page ad in a newspaper, but we can have a website 
right next to theirs. So that is um, was the great equalizer, I think, for us. And and uh, so we we out of a kind of a real, you know, sense of practicality, just decided we'd go we'd we'd take the web route rather than trying to compete on any other level. We just didn't have the money. Right. And so, how did you convince the actors to? stay to lay low i mean their imdb pages listed them as missing possibly deceased so how did you get yeah. them to, to i mean granted it is a, a gig but how did you get them to to go along with it well i mean really once the movie was picked up at sundance that's when really everything sort of exploded i mean we didn't we didn't have any plan partly because we we're just clueless we, we didn't <laughs> didn't have any plan of how the movie would be marketed if it got purchased. We were just trying to get it bought. We, we were hoping just to get our money back and pay the investors off. Um, we had to spend a whole bunch of money on a print. I mean, back in those days, Sundance would only take a 35 print and that was really expensive. That was more than our home movie. Um, so we just wanted to be able to pay the investors back, use Blair as sort of a calling card and then maybe have that, you know, get us a TV gig or something that actually paid us a salary. Right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So we really weren't thinking like, well, how do, you know, what do the actors do once the movie's released? Like we, we weren't even thinking in those terms. And it wasn't until Artisan, the, the distributor that bought the movie at Sundance, we started having those conversations. Like, okay, well, if we release this film on 400 screens, do we, do we maintain the conceit that it's real? Right. right. And so, yeah, they had the conversation with the actors like, OK, you're going to have to lay low for a couple of weeks. And so so we can play this as, right. as legit as a, basically a snuff film. <laughs> That's really what it's what they're marketing is a snuff film. Um, and then then we'll let the we'll, we'll let the cat out of the bag after a right. week. Clearly, I mean, even if you were following it all at Sundance, I mean, the L.A. Times was reporting on us and the actors were there. They did photo shoots. Wow premier magazine so there was no it was no secret right but if you were not really plugged into the industry news or if you weren't if you didn't get a subscription to premier magazine or filmmaker magazine you wouldn't have known right, right. I, I remember i mean i yeah. watched it in the theater in the summer of 1999 i mean yeah. i remember watching it in the theater and walking out after that last scene of you know in the house you know camera dropped and you're like that wait that's it that's how the movie went like okay well this has to, like there was n there was no ending yeah so this has to be real yeah there's no epilogue or anything but there are credits if you watch the credits you see the you know there's right. the credits but um but again we played we tried to walk that line with uh and i find this fascinating about human nature you don't have to do much to convince them that something is real if they already want to believe it right and that's really what we were playing on with blair witch you kind of want to believe that there's something going on out there that there's some something that's otherworldly something that we can't control something that's bigger than ourselves um you just have to give people a little bit of push, a little bit of nudge, and they'll and they're in. They'll they'll they'll, they'll totally believe it. Um, I mean, I have this funny story that this this uh, cop from Albany called our office in Orlando, and I pick up the phone, and this this police officer is on the other line. This is officer whatever, and I'm, I used to work at the you know, Albany police department. And I was down in the Maryland area for a few years. And I do not remember this case. Do you have any name of like the, the serving officer of the time or what, what their jurisdiction? And yeah, I just stopped him. Dude, it's all fake. I thought, is he going to come arrest us or something? Are what we doing? Is it illegal? And he, he just paused for a minute. There's just like kind of awkward silence. And he just cracked up laughing. You have no idea how much energy I'm putting into looking into this case. <laughs> <laughs> laughing and it's, it's just a movie it's just, and he was oh it's so cool well if you guys need any help let me know this is awesome and he was That's a great report about it but even a police officer right. right i mean who has access to all this information i could just picture him like going through case files and calling up his friends and like where is this missing persons case i'm hearing all about 
if it'll fool that guy, right? You now, what hope does the average viewer have, right? I mean, if, I mean if, if you're not like perusing through page 12 of Filmmaker Magazine, seeing how we made the movie, you're not going to, you're just not going to know. The right. mainstream individual is just not going to know. So, so it really, it struck that balance and it, and, it, and it played to that, to that, I think that desire for people to want to believe something is real and, um, and was, we kept it just ambiguous enough that, that, that you could, you could, you could allow yourself to believe that without having to work too hard. <laughs> I, man, it, 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 it definitely, it definitely worked. Now I have a question about the, you know, directing and, and editing that now the cameras were being held by the actors. Right. So were you able to see in live time what they were shooting or did you have to wait till the end of the day or till a cut to see what the shot was? It, it was a little bit of both. I, you have to kind of imagine, I mean, our whole mandate was realism. We wanted it to look and feel 100% uh, authentic. Right. And to do that, we had to let the actors shoot it. I mean, if, if it felt like any of the camera moves were contrived or premeditated or looked like they were set up, um, I mean, directors and filmmakers, they can be their own worst enemy because you're going to have an inclination to, to, to want to frame a shot a certain way. It's just going to look like it was too convenient, especially if we, if we know what's going to happen in advance, right? So we really want to maintain this sense of realism so we gave the actors just enough information of what they would really know in real life, you know, what their characters would know, and then allow them to shoot it. So we had sort of this live sort of um, rolling play, if you will, where the, where the woods were, was our stage. And mm -hmm. so we were able, Ed and I were able to kind of, kind of be in the audience, if you will, just a, you know, a few feet away in the bushes to watch their performances as they were shooting. And we were literally in full camo, you know, we were had, like, we weren't in like ghillie suits or anything, but we were like in full camo right. and in case the camera wiped over us that you didn't want two directors standing there watching them. Right. Right. In the woods, observing their performances and be out of, out of, out of line side, whenever that camera would wipe by. So we were able to view and review performances that way. And then, as you said, at the end of the day, we got their tapes because um, we had these waypoints you know, through GPS that they were, you know, scheduled to, to 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 rendezvous at at the end of each night. Then we would get their tapes, give them new batteries and fresh tapes, and then Ed and I would watch what they shot um, from the camera's perspective every night, so we could see um, how the performances were tracking. Right. They're arguing too much. If Heather was too hot, you know, we had to restage scenes because, you know, we got some of what we needed, but we didn't get everything. So we had to go back and reshoot stuff. So we were able to sort of like navigate and control the narrative through that process um, while still allowing the actors to shoot and roll, roll the cameras themselves. So that was, it was tricky. It was That's it went against every instinct you're taught as a director. Yeah. Right. You're, you're like you're you want to get your hands in there and like stop everything. And and you have to trust the process that that it was going to work out OK. And and at the time we were shooting that stuff, we were still thinking that all of this woods footage would only constitute about 20 minutes of the finished film. We were still thinking that would be a, like a normal documentary with talking heads and stuff like that. Oh. So, we were hoping that we'd just get a few good moments of, of it. So we weren't thinking this would would be a whole movie's worth of stuff. So, um, so yeah, that evolved over time as well. That's it. I had, I had no clue. That's yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that was one of the big changes in our, in our original plan um, that rather than it looking like a, a typical documentary, we just, as we, we cut several versions over over a few months where we put the found footage stuff at the beginning and then we had all these talking heads and we had the talking heads at the beginning and switched it around and then we sprinkled it all, you know, checkerboarded it throughout, like just wasn't working. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So we had, so we came to the decision of just like going with just the footage in the woods, um, right. feeling that we had a full narrative from that and uh, and it worked out. So we used this other stuff that we shot in the in the sci-fi special, and, right. and that worked out. Um, 
but yeah, that was um, again one of those things that where the film itself was screaming at us. This is really what I want to be, and right. and and um, and so that's something I tell. I try to tell filmmakers, sometimes you don't want to listen to that. Sometimes you don't, because it's not your original vision and it's hard to let that go. I'll be the first one to admit that. Um, but yeah, the, the, the footage, the found footage itself, we ended up doing a much better job than we thought we were going to do, right? Because we shot it pretty much in real time. We, we structured a, a kind of a three-act narrative with the footage and how it was all scripted out only thinking that we'd use pieces of that along that cr chronological timeline, just chunks of it. But we wanted to have that internal continuity. So we wanted to start off at the beginning and have a middle and an end and all that. Um, but it ended up working better than we anticipated because, you know, when we were watching it all together, man, we have a whole movie here. And so right. sort of accidentally kind of backed into that, that version of the film. Right. Now, when you, when you guys watched, uh, you know, what is, I assume is the most iconic scene of the movie, you know, the, the tent, you know, the snot bubbles, all that. Did you guys just high five each other knowing that that scene was in your hands? Yeah. I mean, it, we still weren't sure at that stage, what kind of movie we had. It was still experimental. Um, we were, we were pretty pleased that we were getting really good performances which is the first thing. And then right. I don't care what it is, what movie you're shooting. If you've got good performances, you're 90% you're of the way home. Um, so we're getting really good performances. Whether they all cut together or not, we weren't sure yet. <laughs> but that's that, the... that scene was about 15 minutes long, um, the source footage, and it went on for a while. But Heather's performance was so rock solid and so compelling. And convincing absolutely 100 percent the fear is exuding out of her body it's just so it's so convincing that we were like well shit this will have some impact in some way this we know this this scene is going to is going to shake things up in some way we're not sure how it's all going to plug into the movie but i mean that's we, if we can have a handful of those moments in this film, right. then we're golden. We're good. We've got something we can be proud of. And that was really one of those moments where we sort of looked at each other and go, man, that was good. <laughs> that was a good, I'm not sure how it's going to cut in, but man, that was a good performance. So I was, uh, was encouraging at the time. Absolutely. And I want to talk about some of your, your other works as well. Mm -hmm. uh, like Skyman, you're, you're wearing the hat, yeah. under the bed. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about these things. But uh, before we do that, I, you know, I got to ask about not this, not Book of Shadows sequel because that doesn't really exist. But uh, Blair Witch, the the sequel, which would have I guess been Blair Witch three. Right. So you and you and Ed had originally come up with the concept for that, right? What what happened? What happened with that? Well, we the the um, uh, Simon Barrett and Anna Weingard had this idea for a sequel. Um, and it was going kind of going back into the found footage notion, which is what Lionsgate really wanted to kind of do. And Ed and I always thought, you know, we kind of did that already. And, and we've always sided with the, with the idea that Blair Witch was more than just the movie that we did. It, it's, it's a whole kind of mythology. And there's um, a history of happenings like sort of like the devil's triangle is, you know, you've got these different events that take place about every 40 years. And our movie of the three kids disappearing was just one of those episodes, one of those events. So we've always had the, the idea of like exploring those other events throughout history um, and, and uh, making it more of an overall kind of uh, universe and kind of a mythology and, and, and unfortunately, you know, Lionsgate just hasn't embraced that approach. You know, like we thought, I've always thought it'd be cool to like do a Rustin Parra movie or maybe an origin story like The Witch, you know, um, with Ellie Kedward and that sort of thing. But at the same time, when Lionsgate said, well, we're doing this, we're doing a reboot in 2016 with, with, with Adam and Simon and we like their work. And, and the thing that we liked about those guys is that they, they at least embraced the mythology. They, they, they weren't 
unlike this, the sequel, which sort of broke the mythology and became sort of self-referential, they, they, you could tell they were really fans of the original film. And, um, and they, did, they did their own version, had their own spin on it, and, which I thought was really well executed and really well done. Um, but I, I think Ed and I still like maintain that maybe naive notion of, of exploring those other, uh, other stories that we've created throughout the years of, of, of the mythology itself. Um, because, you know, I mean, not that I have anything against found footage films. I mean, we made, we popularized the genre pretty well with Blair, but, um, but that's for other people, I think, to do. Right. I mean, not that I, I don't, like the genre, I think it's an amazing genre. I mean, Skyman could be ar- could could ar- be argued that it's sort of in that documentary format, but right. um, but it is um, for Blair. I felt like if we were doing it, sort of dipping in the same well too much, and and um, but I think I think the, the guys did a great job with it, and um, I, and I'm still hopeful that you know maybe Lionsgate will. They, they're the ones that own the, the franchise now that that we may come around and do something that's a bit more um, exploring what so many fans I feel want to see is is you know some of those tentpole moments in the mythology of of right. Blair Witch that that is definitely higher budget, no doubt about it, but um, I think would be very popular. Yeah, uh, I. I agree. I agree. Uh, Blair yeah. Witch Universe, MCU, watch out! It's uh, yeah. I mean, there's. I mean, to me, it seems like a no-brainer, but I'm not. A, I'm not a, an executive, probably for a good reason. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think um, it just seems like if if one of these one of these episodes was announced that ties so much into the Blair Universe, it would be you have the IP already in place, right? So you just have to milk it and really and really build up from that. And even if you hadn't seen the original film, make that movie, the new one, stand on its own two feet, make it super scary. That would promote people to go see the original film. Like, what's this? Yeah, I gotta go see the original now. So, um, but you know, it is, I'm still hopeful, but we'll, we'll we, we can't dwell on it, but. Right. Um, but yeah, it seems like every few years I hear rumors. Of, oh, they're going to start it up again. I well, it's to me, it's pretty simple. But you know, again, I'm not an executive. I'm just a lowly filmmaker. <laughs> now, now, being a filmmaker, you've obviously your your hand your hands are all over. You know, horror, sci-fi, uh, you know, pa- uh, paranormal. Yeah, what is especially paranormal? What is it about that genre? that appeals to you and what were some of your favorites you know growing up well i love sci-fi and horror and 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 all that i I think growing up in the late 70s and 80s it was i mean it was so much in the zeitgeist in those days um you know ufos and bigfoot and loch ness monster and um you know i I had a ufo club when i was a kid and (laughs) um in in fort myers and we go out looking for like ufo evidence and i mean it was goofy stuff but it was so compelling and i think um i think it's something you know that kind of uh mythology and folklore is very powerful it's something that really motivates people to have these experiences whether they're real or not um it's sort of secondary. It's, it's, it's the fact that they feel it's real, right? They believe it's real. And I think that part of the human condition has always fascinated me. And, and I, a lot of my films have that sort of that common theme in them about what, what drives people to believe certain things. And, um, and there's a, there's, there's a, a real sort of human condition element, both on a personal level. And I think sort of a, a larger commentary with, with a lot of the stuff that I've done um, that I like to explore. It's just fun to explore it. And, um, but yeah, I've, 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 I grew up on that, on those, on those films. And um, it's kind of hard to not have it in your sort of DNA, cultural DNA. <laughs> so, you know, I still want to do a comedy, but 
but it'll probably be a horror comedy. <laughs> That's right. what I'm now, so we'll see. <laughs> now, being in Orlando, did you ever get to those early Halloween Horror Nights days? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I I was... Uh, and I guess L.A. as well at, at, you know, at Universal Hollywood. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I worked at... Uh, I mean, I was back in, in Orlando back in the early 90s when it was like, you know, Hollywood East and um, and it was we had high, high hopes for the film business to sort of just take over the world in Orlando. Um, and Full Sail was was I mean, it was like a little like it was cool, but it was like a little plaza. It was in a plaza off of, I think, what was it? Universal University Boulevard was and um they had cool gear but it was just a small little thing and now it's a huge campus and the whole deal and i mean same with ucf but um <clears throat> so it was a kind of a the very early days of taking films seriously in orlando and when universal studios came in and opened up like legit sound stages and of course mgm came in and opened up sound stages we were very optimistic and pro film. And of course, Panavision was out there and Chapman was out there and C3. And when we were cranking, it was great. It was a great time to be in Orlando as a young filmmaker. And I learned a lot. I learned so much, probably a lot faster than I would have if I had been in LA, because I could kind of get into doing, um, you know, projects, uh, that I otherwise wouldn't got wouldn't have gotten involved with, uh, you know, on a, in a bigger pond. And so, oh, oh my wife is calling. Sorry, no problem. Anyway, I just yeah, I don't need to talk to her. <laughs> um, but yeah, being in Orlando, it was a great time in those days to get a lot of experience really quickly. And being that we were sort of like the you know, inaugural class, film class at UCF. We were sort of had a lot of perks, you know, where, you know, you see, or, um, you, you know, um, sorry, C3, like, yeah, bring your student films over and you can use the rank Intel and all of it. Oh, cool, man. And you've got to all use cool gear. And um, so it was, it was, it was a cool time to be making movies. Everybody right. was just, we were all so naive. <laughs> um, and, thought we were going to take over the world. But, um, but at the same time, it was very collaborative in those days too. So it was, it was, it was a good time to be making movies. That's, that's awesome. What was it like working with Beverly D'Angelo on under the bed? She's amazing. I love Beverly D'Angelo. I, I, we, we just hit it off. I don't know what it was, but um, uh, you know, I, called her up or her agent sent her the script and you know it was a you know this nifty little thriller kind of script um very simple and contained and and she called me up and and i spoke to her and she goes you know dan i have not left la to do a movie in 25 years and i read your script and i just i gotta go do this movie and um and she was just a total pro. I mean, she came out and just knocked it out of the park. And I mean, she had every right and the history and everything. She could have been like the diva on set and all that. And she was just such a joy to work with. I know that sounds like a fluff piece, but she really, uh, we really hit it off. We, we sort of hung out like after the movie was done, we would go out to lunch and stuff after, after, you know, the movie was, was done. So we sort of hit it off, but um but she, uh, she's just an amazing, talented person. I mean, it's just so nice to work with, with talent that, that has seen so much of the business and is so and so professional and so skilled. It, it just makes your job as a director so much easier. Um, and so she did a wonderful job for us. I mean, she just played the mother role in that in that so well and. Um, not to take anything away from Hannah New, who is our star, and she's a brilliant actress in her own right, and made made um, you know uh, made my job easy as well. But um, but yeah, Beverly was was just a a real joy to work with. I mean, I just I don't know what else to say. She was just really really fun to hang out with and work with, and um, and she's you know. Uh, you know, Al Pacino, she, she shares kids with Al Pacino 
and, and she said, well, yeah, I left Al with the kids. Um, so, and then she'd be on the phone on set talking to Al about how to get the kids to school. And, you know, I got, so she, she's not real good at doing that. You got to kind of instruct them how to get in, you know, to take them the right way to school. I'm just picturing Al Pacino, like frustrated, trying to make lunch for the kids and getting to school with Beverly D'Angelo on set, just talking him through it. Like, it was just, it was one of those surreal moments, but, um, but she's so down to earth and so cool. And it was again, just a real joy to work with her. That, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I want to talk about, about Skyman. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, that was a movie that came out or scheduled to come out in, in 2020. Right. Yeah. Um, COVID kind of kicked us in the butt on that one. Yeah. But uh, I think you still made it work by showing it where horror films should be shown. And that is the drive-in. Yeah. I had to say we, there, we had sort of that drive-in resurgence there for a while and we never would have, we never would have, been released at drive-ins. I mean, and right. like, well, Skyman was like the perfect movie for a drive-in. And um, just getting so, like, just getting shivers thinking about watching it and then something behind. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, that, that was, so, was uh, so cool to see, you know, the, the logo, the Skyman logo on a, on a drive-in screen. It's like, right. how awesome is that? Dude. So that never would have happened, right? You know, uh, so I, I think um, in some ways that was sort of a silver lining. I mean, Skyman was never meant to be like a big commercial film. It was sort of a personal film. Right. I, I would even like venture to say, uh, I view it as sort of a transitional film for me. It was, it was a lot of people probably expected it to be more horror. And, and in reality, I wanted it to be a bit more kind of character study, science right. fiction sort of thing. And um, I mean, it did, it did well. I mean, we got, we got a great review in New York Times and the Boston Globe, and we premiered at the Austin Film Festival, which is very prestigious. So it it it, it got we got a lot of mileage out of it. Did really well. I'm very proud of it and happy with it. And and um, both Nicolet um, Sweeney and and um, Michael Selly, who played the brother sister, the leads in in the film, did a wonderful job for us. Um, but I think um, you know those transitional kind of movies where people sort of expect you to do a horror, like where are all the scares? I definitely got people saying it wasn't as scary as I thought it would be. It wasn't meant to be scary. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people were really refreshed by it too. They go, Oh, this is, this is a completely different take on a UFO movie. Right. And it kind of caught me by surprise. And it was a really cool kind of um, thoughtful exploration into this guy's sort of obsession. And so getting back to the discussion we were having before about how it fascinates me, how people sort of drawn in and believe in this, in this whole world. So it was sort of my homage to that, that, that kind of mindset and those people that have to kind of, you know, whether you believe their story or not, they, they really both suffer and, and experience these things in a very real way from their perspective. So um, of course, there's always a little twist at the end of my movie, so you're not quite sure what's real or not. But um, but it was a fun movie to do. I think I have to say that was probably the most fun I had making making the film um, in in a long time. It was just a really great experience. That's that's good. To, that's good to hear that a, a movie that you you know due to circumstances you you didn't think it was you know going to be released, but turns out to to be a positive. Yeah, uh, want to dive into what I call the Milo Beasley show frequently asked questions. These are going to be the same five questions that I asked to all my guests here. Um, they're relatively easy. I mean, theor theoretically, you know all the answers. So well, I'm not any math involved. I'm, I'm no, good. <laughs> no math, no math. All right. So, uh, but it will be a drain on the memory stick. So all right. uh, question number one. What was the first concert you attended? Oh, wow. Okay, first. Well, it's questionable if it would be called a concert. It depends on like what constitutes a concert. It's like 200 people or 2,000 people. But uh, I would say the first concert I went to, it was, a, it was at my high school. It was in the gymnasium. Oh. It's a packed gymnasium. 
And this band, there were two, three bands there, two high school bands, and then a quasi high school band that they were looked a lot older than us. <laughs> no, they were really, maybe they were, maybe they're senior, maybe three times over seniors or something. I don't know. Right. They were so good, man. They were like the coolest rock band in, in all the area. Um, that was in Sarasota. And uh, so that was like my first concert experience. And then, but the, like a legit big stadium right. concert, I think was, I want to say it was Foreigner. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I went to Foreigner. I think it was at the Lakeland Civic Center um, way back in the day. And it was Foreigner and Blackfoot. And Blackfoot opened up for Foreigner and they played Train. It just knocked it out of the park. And Foreigner came in out and started doing their bit. And then about two songs in, everyone was going, Blackfoot, Blackfoot. <laughs> everyone was like yelling for Blackfoot to come back out. <laughs> it was pretty funny. But they did a great job. Nothing against Foreigner. They, 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 they kicked into their hits right, right after that. But, um, but yeah, I think that was my first like legit big like go to a stadium kind of concert. All right. Our next question again, not singled out towards you. I think I may know your answer, but you may surprise me. Do you believe in ghosts? Um, not really. I think, I think, um, I never say never. Right. I, I think I take a more scientific approach to my worldview, but, but that being said, you have to um, you have to leave a little opening for something that you can't quite define um, scientifically, right? Um, first, you have to sort of like come down on a, on a on a baseline. What is a ghost? What what what? How do you define that? Is it right. is it an entity? Is it something moving? Is it? I mean, what constitutes a ghost? And then from there, you can kind of like try to define what that might be. Certainly there are those that believe there are spirits running around their homes and knocking over coffee cups and stuff like that. That's not really, to me, normally, that's not really believable for me. But, um, but is there the potential for there being um, some kind of collective presence? That maybe our maybe we're interconnected some way, and it feels like something is real among us. I guess so. That could be possible. Maybe it's something we can't explain now, and later on, a hundred years from now, we'll find out. Oh yeah, it's it's this X Y Z. You know, it's like if someone tr tried to explain what radio waves were to me, if I was you know five hundred years ago, it would have been magic. It would have been someone, you know, to hear a sound come out of a speaker would have been magic, right? So to say, so that's. That's kind of where, that's my long-winded version of maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question number three, and a little twist on a common question. In a movie about your life, who would play your parents? Hmm. Hmm. Who would play my parents? Well, it's like, that's sort of a loaded question because it could be who I would want to play my parents. Right. And who would actually would be cast for my parents. Right. <laughs> so I'm just like, uh, Steve McQueen and Raquel Welch. That's <laughs> who I want to play my parents. Um, they're nothing like my actual parents, but uh, well, my dad was an engineer, so he was kind of a brainiac. And my mom was an artist, painter, person so there are two opposite ends of the spectrum um so yeah maybe carl sagan and <laughs> uh and joan baez <laughs> maybe that would be my one of my parents <laughs> uh question number four who is your favorite person to follow on social media um ricky gervais it's a good one yeah, I think he's. Yeah. I probably follow him more than anybody right now. So he's just fun and and very insightful and and um, and hilarious. You know? Right. 
and not be afraid to say anything because ever. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's no, he's not afraid of any. I mean, if you can do what he does at the golden gloves, like you're, you have no fear, buddy. <laughs> we really admire about him. All right. And then our last question, um, whether it's on a movie set at a premiere at a convention, what has been that biggest fanboy moment where you saw somebody and you were just like, Oh my gosh, I have to meet them. Or, there's no way I'm going to meet them. You get tongue tied, your knees get weak. You're like, not going to do it. I, you know, I've, I rarely get enamored or fanboy on, 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 um, anybody. I'm just, you know, cause I'm too cool. No, <laughs> I just, uh, you know, people are human beings to me, but that being said, um, I got an opportunity um, from a mutual friend producer um, to go on the set of Minority Report back when Spielberg was shooting the subway scene with Tom Cruise. Um, the Janusz Comiskey there was shooting DP and all that. And, I'm, and so I, I, I was my first exposure to like the AAA team, right? There's, there's right. Like, that group of people, it doesn't get any bigger. There's no, there's no, there's no echelon above that. <laughs> that is the everyone on, on the crew, the yep. staffer, the coordinator, the top of their game. That's the best of the best of the, the Super Bowl of filmmakers, right there. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to watch these right. guys at work, and I'm sitting on the steps. My producer's behind me, and I'm just. I'm just a kid in a candy store. I'm just sitting there watching it. And this is like right after Blair. So I kind of had a little clout to be able to get in there and kind of watch. And I'm sitting there. And then I hear him talking to somebody behind me. You know, so I go, this is Dan Meyerick. He did Blair Witch, blah, blah, blah. And Dan tapping on the shoulder. I said, this is Steven Spielberg. And I'm like, hi. And I'm sitting down. And Spielberg's like, oh, I really loved your movie. And he, and he shakes my hand. I'm sitting there. And I'm like, I thought he was going to say, oh, nice to meet you and be on his way. Right. And he continued talking to me. And I'm like, oh, shit, I better stand up. I, I stood up. But we had a conversation for about 20 minutes on the steps. And he was just so enamored with the film, my movie, and told me how much he liked the, you know, I really love that Mike Williams character. He was great. And so how did you do this? And then after about five minutes of, like, being completely starstruck, it was just one filmmaker talking to another. We were just talking shop. And it was the most amazing moment. I'll never forget it. And I'm and and you know, he just and I'll never forget the advice he sent to me. I said, you know what? Well, and I was so silly. I said, I really loved your movie. And I said, well, Mr. Spielberg, I I mean, I kind of like your body of work too. <laughs> what do you say? It's like uh, that whole little thing you did with ET and the close encounters and um and he was he was very modest, and he said, "You know what, Dan? Dan, um, we all influence each other's work. We all we all we all contribute to everyone else's work." I was like, I, he said, "I remember meeting Stanley Kubrick, and I was so nervous meeting Stanley Kubrick." And this is Spielberg talking about his idol, right? And he said, "I just know that him he influences me. I, I have moments and scenes of him in my work." And we all have each other's work in, in, in our stuff. And I just thought that was the coolest, most humbling thing that someone like him at his status could say, right? And so after a moment, I looked around and everybody on the crew was like looking, who is Stevens talking to? <laughs> Everyone's like waiting. Dude, we got to get going. Tom Cruise is down there like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> I said, you better get back to work, man. I said, oh, yeah, sure. So he went, on, he went on and continued to stay. And I'm like, and I was, I don't think I touched the ground all the way home. It was like one of the coolest yeah. moments ever. So that was definitely a fanboy moment for me. I, w yeah. I would say so. I would yeah. say so. Right, before we wrap up, uh, can you tell us what you're working on now? Anything that's coming out uh, the next couple months or so? Yeah. You know, we've been shooting. I mean, it was through COVID. We had to stop for a while. But we're doing this anth horror anthology series called Black Veil. 
and we're, we're gearing that back up again. We had a couple of episodes and then COVID hit and then we, we're starting back up with that. Um, and I'm, I'm in the process of, of pitching a platform, a horror platform idea called Tremor TV that I'd like to be a sort of a place for horror fans to come and horror filmmakers to come to show and interact and engage with each other on sort of this next like web 3.0 level. I, right. I, we're in the midst of doing that. And that's been, that's was germinating through the COVID era. And, and, and uh, so that's kind of what I'm into. And then last but not least is the second half of that tour divide ride in June. So we'll right. see goes <laughs> fantastic i can't wait to, to keep up with that um on the socials and then speaking of socials if folks want to follow you know your, your work your rides where can they uh where can they go for that yes you can hit me up on facebook i'm on twitter so it's it's um you know just dan myrick on 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 uh on facebook it's just you'll find me and then everything else kind of connects to that so um so yeah i'm i'm on all the usual suspects <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I want to thank you again for for coming on and, and chatting with me. Um, again, Blair Witch is, you know, again, I re it's I remember sitting there in the theater. So it's uh, definitely etched into my brain for a very long time. And I'm, I'm super excited to see what else comes from that possible universe and, and see what else uh, comes from you. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Milo. Oh, absolutely. And everybody else who's watching, thank you for watching. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button wherever it is. And uh, most importantly, tell your friends. We will see you next week with Mark Volman from the Turtles. So speaking of first concerts. All right. See you guys later.